Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Hugh Rimminton. Welcome to episode two of our podcast series, The Conspiracy Virus. In episode one, Anthony Lowenstein and Olivia Rosenman examined the anti vaxxer conspiracy movement. For this episode, they look at the proliferation of mistruths and conspiracy theories that have sprung up around the great dividing issue of our age, the warming planet. Lightning strikes have been hitting Tasmania for as long as anyone remembers, harmlessly hitting wet ground. Before the 1990s, lightning strikes never caused any fires, but something has changed in the last years. We're actually dealing with the the consequences of climate change. So we're out there fighting the fires. Two years ago, there was something like 300 lightning strikes in Tasmania. That that was unheard of before that event. No one living has has ever seen lightning strikes in Tasmania like that, to that extent. That's David Downey, who runs a mixed farm in northern Tasmania with wool, beef, poppies and potatoes. Well, it's, uh, there's a lot of fairly flat land and we have a lot of uh, river flats, which are good marsh country for running cattle. And then the next tier off the river, we, we do a lot of irrigation. Dry lightning strikes are a relatively new phenomenon in Tasmania. In dry conditions, they cause carnage. Out-of-control fires are becoming the new normal. David now sees the grim realities of climate change in his state, but it wasn't always this way. Uh, I, I was a climate change denier. I, I always had the view that the landscape, um, the geography changes through climatic changes. So the fire, um, wind and floods shape the, the landscape that we're, that we're in and that's happened over many years. He mocked those who advocated climate action. Uh, most most farmers would roll their we would roll our eyes at the mention of climate change. We thought they were creating problems and and the, and and they were unrealistic, which made it harder to believe what they were saying. There weren't practical solutions that were put forward to be able to um, uh, stop the effects of, of if climate change if they were if they were actually happening. David's three children disagreed with him. They thought that climate change was an issue long long before I did and they had the view that people should be doing something about it. It was a visit to the UK around 10 years ago to see his daughter that helped change David's mind. Uh, yes, that was the, uh, I think they call it the Natural Museum in London, uh, central London, and uh, there was a graph. I think it was, the graph was of the temperature of the Earth's surface. It was from the evolution of, of the Earth, but right at the end, the, the graph actually went up very steeply, which um, signified the, 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 uh, the start of the Industrial Revolution. For David, this graph was a powerful visual representation that partly explained what he'd been witnessing with climatic change on his farm in Tasmania. 
that graph in that museum, uh, it, it illustrated the point of the, of the effects of the Industrial Revolution and the burning of fossil fuels on the atmosphere of, of the Earth. There was a direct correlation between um, fossil fuel burning and um, the changes in the atmospheric temperatures. David started to recognise the impact that fossil fuels were having on the planet and how human life sometimes caused damage to its delicate ecosystem. That visit to the Natural History Museum was an important step in his evolution on the issue. David started reading more on it, and it didn't take long before he dived into finding practical ways he could reduce his impact. The interest in creating renewable energy assets is a bigger event of, of importance than that observation. That observation, that's like it's the sowing the seed, but the seed evolves into a, into a tree um, from a whole lot of other activities that result from that observation. In the last decade, many of David's farming friends and colleagues have both accepted the reality of climate change and advocated for policies to address it. David is also part of Farmers for Climate Action, a group of farmers, graziers and agriculturalists who implement climate solutions on their farms and advocate for climate policies in government and the agricultural sector. And over the last 10 years, I reckon the, the, the lake that feeds the Macquarie River that I'm on has failed probably five, five or six times in 10 years. Previous to that, it probably failed once in 30 years. So the, so the question is, what, what has caused that to happen? I, I, my gut feeling is that it's part, it's part of the effects of climate change. Tasmania has changed in a remarkably short amount of time, and David today embraces the state's support of renewables. If you look in Tasmania, we're one of the few states in the world where nearly 100% of the power produced here is produced by renewable energy. We have a Premier who wants to double that. He wants to go from 100 to 200% renewable energy generation. Um, by the way, we want to be part of helping him do that. But what that's, what that's actually doing is that extra 100% will be available to sell to the mainland. At a time when science is being listened to and respected in Australia around COVID, David wants to ask the federal government why they're so selective in their appreciation of facts. The coronavirus has made the leaders of our country uh, sit up and listen to the scientists. And they say the strategies that they've adopted to control the coronavirus has been the result of listening to the, the scientists, the health experts. So the question then has to be asked, why won't the leaders of our country listen to uh, what the scientists are saying about climate change? Now the coronavirus has killed and will kill a few million people in the world. If you listen to the scientists, what are they saying about climate change? And what I've heard is they're talking about billions of people dying. With the worst global pandemic in a century, it's easy to presume that COVID has convinced Australians that climate action is less urgent. Public polling suggests otherwise. According to a recently released survey by the think tank The Australia Institute, 80% of people think that Australia is already experiencing climate-related problems. 80% want to shut down coal-fired power stations. 71% want Australia to be a global leader in climate action. 
But Australians haven't always been convinced about the need to take action on climate change. And that's because the public discourse around it has been so messy. Science writer Ketan Joshi has observed how the discourse has evolved in Australia. It started from a point of outright denial. So climate change denial in the 2010s, last decade, took a very specific format. There was a lot of focus on science and scientists. So the idea was essentially that the science is either not certain enough for us to make the decision to act to reduce emissions, or specifically that the science was actually verifiably and certainly wrong. And so acting to reduce emissions would be a form of harm or or damage to society. Uh, And that both of those lines were run at incredible intensity from around sort of 2008 to 2013, 14-ish. This was something that dominated media, it dominated politics, uh, and it caused plenty of uh, scars on many scientists who were working in this field, but also having to deal with this completely novel phenomenon where the information they were releasing was being met with this absolute wall of misinformation. Next, the discourse on climate change evolved from denial to delay. We cannot take climate action now. We cannot move too quickly because if we do, it will devastate the economy. But as we're starting to see the impacts of climate change more clearly, the denial is re-emerging. And so natural disasters, of course, are the primary way that most people experience the impacts of climate change uh, in a very obvious sense. And of course, uh, heat waves and wildfires are two that are very significant. Australia had the Black Summer bushfires of 2019-20 and California midway through 2020 has experienced a very similar thing, uh, which is basically when you have uh, bushfires or wildfires at a severity that was not happening before, where the fingerprint of emissions, the change from previous fires becomes really, really clear. And so both of those instances inspired a form of disinformation that was trying to downplay the linkage between those disasters and the role of climate change uh, in making them much more likely to occur. Bushfires of late 2019 and early 2020 had a real impact on many Australians' lives. The country's major cities were blanketed in smoke for much of the summer. Air pollution levels were off the charts. For some people, it felt like climate change had arrived. This this is real. We must declare a climate emergency. You cannot leave it any longer. The, The bushfires in Australia really felt like the the first major natural disaster in the Western world and for white countries uh, that was almost inarguably linked to climate change. It almost felt like there was this air of assumption uh, where it was almost unquestionable. Even the people who would normally be out there denying this aggressively felt some need to pare it back a little bit. But of course, in response to that, in response to that very significant social change, what we saw was a very serious push by a couple of uh, subsectors of politics and media in Australia to try and introduce some doubt into into this very significant change in tone. 
they had to provide an alternative narrative to explain some of the worst bushfires in recorded Australian history. Uh, and what emerged around that time was actually a story about arson. Um, so that's uh, people intentionally lighting fires. And what this did was it conflated two different things. One is the reason that a fire ignites and the other thing is the reason that a fire spreads quickly and burns intensely. Uh, of course, climate change affects the second. Climate change uh, makes fires burn hotter and move faster and arson affects the first, which is uh, the ignition point for bushfires. Of course, you know, many months on, we know that most of the ignition points for those fires were actually lightning. But the story emerged that there was some strange and unaccountable increase in the number of arsonists being caught by police. Uh, and that was based on false information. Why blame arson? I think it ties into a sort of common and long-running theme around conservative thinking, which is essentially that crime uh, and criminals are responsible for the wrongs in societies. And so the idea, of course, then is that all you need to do is have stronger policing. I saw people suggesting uh, drones flying around, you know, uh, suburb bush interface areas um, and police patrols and um, extremely harsh punishments for people caught lighting fires. That sort of thing then just really slots very nicely into, into pre-existing conservative thinking. The idea, which was introduced through stories in mainstream media, was soon amplified by a loosely ideologically affiliated collection of influential local and global social media accounts. Donald Trump Jr. was out there tweeting that article in The Australian saying, wow, I can't believe that all these arsonists are causing these bushfires in Australia. And the theory actually, as soon as it hit social media, it began to morph and expand into different iterations. So uh, there was a, a sort of, I guess, parallel theory that those arsonists were eco-terrorists trying to fake bushfires uh, to get more people to believe in climate change and support climate action. After the Australian bushfires had road-tested a range of false narratives around arson, the same stories were deployed during the horrific Californian wildfires in 2020. Much of the key messaging was coming from within the US. The network of disinformation was ready. When it came to the California wildfires, something I really noticed is a very similar interplay between traditional media and social media. As we saw in Australia, in America, uh, and so when it came to the California wildfires, Fox News in particular uh, were, I guess, one of the originators of the theory that a whole bunch of arsonists were causing wildfires. So what they did was they took they took every single report of someone being caught for causing some sort of arson, and they presented that as evidence that climate change did not play a role in the wildfires. The arson narrative is worth investigating because it shows how disinformation is conceived and then spread rapidly around the world. It's comforting to think that the problem just lies with fringe social media accounts, but in reality, it's often the biggest media outlets and political leaders who are responsible for amplifying these narratives. Tim Graham is a researcher at the Digital Media Research Centre at the Queensland University of Technology. We also heard from Tim in episode one. 
He's looked into the arson emergency hashtag that exploded on social media in late 2019. He found that initially it was pushed by a distinct group of around 300 accounts. Where did these 300 suspicious accounts get this idea that arson and not climate change was the cause of the bushfires? Well, it it didn't, I mean, they didn't come up with it themselves and it didn't come out of nowhere for months preceding the early January social media explosion around arson emergency, there were a series of articles coming out in a variety of different newspapers. Um, There was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald that said that 80 in in, um, late November last year that said that 87% of bushfires were man-made. There was even um, articles that came out in The Guardian. Senators such as uh, Erica Abetz were giving interviews on ABC where they were uh, pushing this 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 narrative, this idea um, that diminished the role of climate change, and tried to simplify to to try and reduce the complexity of of what was really happening down to simply, well, it's just people lighting fires, which we know is not true. It, it really is mainstream media that are you know responsible for moderating and mitigating the the effect of this kind of mis and disinformation. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. There have always been conspiracy theorists wanting to broadcast their ideas to anyone who will listen. What's changed in the age of social media is the speed with which ideas can be spread. Traditional media and online influencers have now become the key intermediaries of misleading, inflammatory and false messages. And as they've amplified mis- and disinformation, the margins have moved inside the mainstream. During the research of this podcast, Olivia became fascinated with one very active anonymous Twitter account. With nearly 13,500 followers, the bio reads, quote, Old, conservative, married, gay, male. Parody, humour, socio-political commentary, hashtag games, humour, cooking, end quote. The account's name is obviously not real, it's a pun about right-wing politics, and the profile photo was a hand-drawn picture of an older woman. Combining right-wing commentary, including climate denialism, with photos of lovingly prepared meals, what attracted you to this person, Olivia? So this account was one of the 300 that Tim Graham identified as having played a big role in pushing the arson emergency hashtag. His feed is a mix of strongly right-wing ideas and opinions mixed with a daily picture of his home-cooked dinner. The food actually looks quite good, and he signs off on each of his foodie tweets with toodles. So you contacted him via Twitter for a potential interview about his views on climate change, but he politely declined, presuming you're with the ABC, right? Yeah, I wanted to ask him about his opinions on the bushfires now, seeing as we have several official reports confirming arson was not a major cause of the fires. I guess I wanted to see if he'd changed his mind. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, he wasn't up for a chat. I spoke to Tim Graham about him. Tim has looked into this account and he says that its exact identity is a mystery, 
but its behaviour fits into the typical pattern of the hardcore trolling accounts he researches. You know, it's a, a fringe, um, hyper-partisan, real person <laughs> um, who has a lot of time on their hands. Graham says this account is unlikely to be a state-sponsored troll because its behaviour doesn't fit with accounts that have previously been identified as Chinese, Iranian or Russian. Rather than being part of a state-sponsored cyber offensive, the account seems to be part of an informal network of conspiratorial social media accounts. This same account was also active in opposing Victoria's recent lockdown restrictions around COVID. What we can say about these kinds of accounts is they want attention and amplifying them by engaging with it is, I mean, it's almost like the textbook definition of a troll. The growing appeal of conspiracy theories isn't always so easily explained. Old-style lies like the moon landing being faked or the 9-11 terror attacks committed by the US government have long existed in the real world and online. Lisa Fazio, Assistant Professor of Psychology and Human Development at Peabody College in Nashville, Tennessee, has a more prosaic and compelling explanation. Conspiracy theories can be really fun. Like, I think that's part of what makes them dangerous and also makes them uh, catch on, is this feeling that you're discovering something that not everyone else knows and that your research has figured out the truth and you and your people know something that other people don't. That's a really nice feeling to have. And I think that's one of the reasons that these conspiracy theories spread, but also why they can be difficult to combat. Climate change is near the top of the list when it comes to intricate falsehoods dressed up as denialism. And in Australia, there's arguably no other issue that's caused so much political and media tension, stagnation and inaction. For some on the fringes, right-wing nationalism has fused with climate change denial. How? Swedish researcher Molten Hultman has found that white males are the highest percentage of climate deniers, so-called industrial breadwinner masculinity. In this belief system, there's little worry about destroying the planet because nature will tolerate all sorts of waste. Nature isn't vulnerable and can't be destroyed. Therefore, economic growth is vastly more important than the environment. Conspiracy theories have run riot across many media outlets. Too often it's because journalists obsess over both-sidism, where climate denialism is given equal footing to considered science. And if it seems like describing climate change denialism as conspiracy theory is too strong, then you need to understand its origins. Naomi Oreskes is a professor of the history of science at Harvard University and author of the book Merchants of Doubt. Back in the early 2000s, she started looking into the debate about climate change. All of my scientific colleagues, to a person, uh, thought that climate change was real, that it was happening, and we knew for sure that it was being driven by greenhouse gases and deforestation. These issues were treated as completely uncontroversial in the scientific community that I was a part of. But in the public sphere, it was a very different thing. The US president at the time, George W. Bush, dismissed climate change and said he wouldn't hurt the American economy. The vice president, Dick Cheney, explicitly denied climate change was happening. So Oreski started to dig into the gap between what she was hearing in public discourse compared to what she was hearing among her scientific peers. 
And so I decided to undertake a scientific study of the scientific literature to analyze quantitatively what scientists had to say about this issue at that time, which was 2003. She analysed 928 scientific papers and found that not a single one of them disagreed with the fact that the Earth's climate is being affected by human activities. Well, what I uncovered was that the so-called debate about climate change wasn't a scientific debate at all, that there was no scientific debate, but that there was a political debate that was being dressed up as a scientific debate, that people who didn't want to accept the reality of climate change for political or economic reasons, particularly the fossil fuel industry, but not only the fossil fuel industry, but particularly them, um, were denying the scientific evidence and trying to make it seem as if there was a scientific debate so that ordinary citizens would think that the science was uncertain. And therefore, if the science were uncertain, then obviously it would be premature to act upon the issue. So Naomi published her paper. That's when I started getting hate mail, threatening phone calls. I was accused of being a Stalinist. I was attacked on the floor of the U.S. Congress. And I always, I call that my Alice through the looking glass moment, because it was like I had walked into a parallel universe. But just like Catherine didn't cower when she fell prey to anti-vax conspiracy theorists, Naomi wasn't scared off. Instead, she was inspired to go deeper. And that's when something even more surprising emerged. The point that at which I realized there was a book that had to be written was realizing that the people involved, that many of them were the same people who had been involved in claiming that tobacco didn't cause cancer. And they were using the same arguments. It was almost as if you could just take the arguments from the tobacco debate, remove the word tobacco, put in the words climate change, and the arguments were exactly the same. And so that made it clear that there was some kind of political or economic story going on. Around the same time, she met Eric Conway, a science historian, and he had discovered the exact same pattern in discourse over the hole in the ozone layer. And so we now had three points, ozone, um, climate change, tobacco. We did a little bit more research, very quickly found that acid rain was part of the story too. These people had, for all of these issues, successfully introduced uncertainty around science that was actually settled with the effect of delaying regulation for years, even decades. Naomi called these people the merchants of doubt. So these people were being paid by the business interests behind each of these issues? It's not quite that simple. They weren't just shills for the fossil fuel industry. In fact, if they had been, it would have been much easier to expose them. What you have is a group of people who were ideologically committed to the notion of free enterprise capitalism and who have believed a story, a narrative that goes like this. Free market capitalism isn't just a good way to develop goods and services. It's a bulwark against communism. It protects us from tyranny because the free market is a form of distributed power. And if we allow the government to intervene in the marketplace, then it will only be a matter of time before the government begins to take over other aspects of our lives. The people we wrote about in Merchants of Doubt all believed this. And they came out of the Cold War. These were physicists who had dedicated their lives to helping to build weapons and rocketry programs, which they understood as containing communism. And now they think that having won the Cold War, they're going to lose it through the back door of regulation. So these men, 
These merchants of doubt promote their worldview through think tanks, through writing books and magazines, and publishing newspaper articles and op-eds. And because their ideology on climate change aligns with that of Rupert Murdoch, they find a faithful partner in all his publications, both in Australia and around the world. That's OK, is it? It's OK to be a propagandist for one side, but if one is a critic or sceptic about some of yep. these issues, that's not OK. And, and so you've just... What you've just... No, no. No, but what you've just disclosed is the fundamental problem that, that the company you work for and its friends in politics, like Trump and others, have turned this issue of physics into an issue of values or identity. Now, saying you believe... <laughs> saying... Saying that you believe or disbelieve in global warming is like saying you believe or disbelieve in gravity. You've turned something that should be a question of engineering and economics into undiluted ideology and idiocy, and we are paying the price in delayed action to address global warming. And we had 12 million hectares of our country burnt last summer, and your newspapers were saying it was all the consequence of some arsonists. And James Murdoch was so disgusted, he dissociated himself from the family business. Now, what does that tell you? How, how offensive, how biased, how destructive does it have to be, Paul, before you will say, one of our greatest writers and journalists, it's enough, I'm out of it? I mean, how long will you how keep apologising? That's former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull talking to one of the Murdoch media's major journalists, Paul Kelly, on ABC TV's Q&A program in November this year. This exchange crystallised how culture war rhetoric has infected the bloodstream of the debate and led to policy inaction. It's not the first time Murdoch's people have had to contend with confrontations like this one. Back in January, after much criticism of their bushfire coverage, the Australian newspaper published an editorial affirming the link between the bushfires and climate change. However, this same editorial dismissed the criticism they'd received as a social media-driven campaign of outrage. The day after the Q&A incident, News Corp released a statement that attacked Turnbull's assertion that its newspapers had falsely highlighted links between arson and the bushfires, claiming that most of its stories never mentioned arson. According to the statement, of over 3,000 stories on the bushfires across their publications, only 3.4% mentioned arson or arsonists. But it's not the stories that didn't mention arson that are problematic. It's the 3.4% that did, some 130 stories, because they did link the fires to arson. According to the New South Wales government's bushfire report, of 32 major fires during the 2019-2020 fire season, not a single one was attributed to arson. And of the total 11,774 fires across New South Wales during the season, just 11 were lit with the intention to cause a bushfire. The report of the Federal Government's Royal Commission into the fires opens with these words, quote, The bushfires started in Australia's hottest and driest year on record. Much of the country was in drought, and the first bushfire started in the middle of winter. End quote. The report is unequivocal. The bushfires were an example of extreme weather that has already become more frequent and intense because of climate change. The facts are clear. According to a recent report by the Bureau of Meteorology and the CSIRO, Australia's climate has entered a worrying era of constant extreme weather events, such as heat waves and bushfires, thanks to soaring average temperatures. The facts are stark. The report says that between 1960 and 2018, 
There were 24 days when the country's highest temperature reached 39 degrees Celsius or higher. In 2019, there were 33 such days. Some credible scientists fear that Australia could face temperature rises this century of at least four degrees, making vast parts of the country uninhabitable. But if you read or watch Murdoch media, you could be forgiven for thinking none of this is happening. Their coverage of climate change has clearly followed the evolution of climate change discourse that science writer Ketan Joshi described at the beginning of this episode. A 2013 study by journalist and academic Wendy Bacon for the Australian Centre for Independent Journalism found that coverage of climate science in News Corp media was dominated by climate scepticism and commentary rather than reporting. For example, in the Australian newspaper. 143 stories mentioned climate science in two three-month periods in 2011 and 2012. Of these 143, 60 stories suggested doubt about the scientific consensus, and seven rejected it outright. Nonetheless, Rupert Murdoch himself has repeatedly said that his media outlets believe in climate change. Confronted by a shareholder activist at the 2019 News Corp AGM, Rupert said. There are no climate deniers around. I can assure you. He also said he was proud his company had reduced its carbon footprint by 25%, six years ahead of schedule. At this year's AGM, Rupert Murdoch again insisted his media companies do not deny climate change. When we look at Murdoch's motivation, it's a combination always of ideological, business, and personal interests. What's the ideological interest? It's a hardline. Far-right ideological interest about tax minimisation, about、uh, disempowering the state acting on behalf of people,、um, just as it is about disputing basic scientific claims about the reality of climate change. Kevin Rudd is another former prime minister now speaking out against the Murdoch media. He recently launched a petition to establish a royal commission in Australia to investigate media bias, monopolies, and the Murdoch press. It attracted a record 501,876 signees. He says a royal commission has become essential. The reason I have that view is because、uh, over the last 40 years, nothing else has been able to break this one open, and the power of media monopoly has become more concentrated. Its political impact has become more biased. The cancerous impact it's having on our democracy is becoming、uh, more insidious. And therefore, it's time to blow it open. The Murdoch worldview on climate change is a key driver of Rudd's attempts to neuter the moguls' power. Ultimately, the best analogy we should have in in mind is the tobacco industry of half a century ago. The tobacco industry funded a whole lot of reports, bogus medical science,、um, as well as、uh, think tank operations, in order to. Send out a confusing and more diffuse message to the community around the central proposition that tobacco kills you. It really does kill you. And the carbon lobby, in many respects, behaves the same way.、Uh, even though carbon pollution, in terms of particular matter, obviously、uh, has an effect in terms of people's longevity, as you see in dense cities around the world. But on climate. The death sentence is a slower burn、uh, over time. It's intergenerational, but the tactics used by the carbon lobby are not dissimilar. It is、uh, their activism in funding 
what I describe as pseudoscience or marginal science to discredit small elements of the established science on uh, climate change. Like David Downey, the farmer in Tasmania, who wonders why the federal government accepts the science around COVID but denies it on climate change, Rudd thinks that this global pandemic has been a clarifying moment. Um, I, I would expect that because um, the immediate impact of the pandemic, if you deny the science and engage in unsafe personal and social practices, is that you could A, catch COVID-19 and B, very soon suffer significant physical impairment or C, die. And uh, as they say in the classics, death often focuses the mind. Now, in the case of climate, uh, you are looking at a longer term process and what I've described often as intergenerational justice, which is um, what are we doing for the generation which comes after my generation, which is the basis of my much disputed claim that climate change is the greatest moral challenge of our time. A key takeaway from this age of disinformation is understanding the forces and agendas behind it. It's not simply a handful of fringe dwellers on social media pushing a discredited agenda. It's often the most powerful forces in the world, either funding climate denialism or pressuring politicians to slow walk the need to decarbonise societies. The merchants of doubt are far more ubiquitous than you think. And there's more of them now. Some of the biggest companies in the world, including Facebook and Google, claim that they care about climate change. But despite their earnest public proclamations, they have donated large amounts of money to conservative organisations and think tanks who doubt climate change and oppose government regulation. And so, of course, what their end goal is, they, is they don't want to be regulated. They would much rather allow misinformation if it means keeping someone who might be about to regulate them happy, then they would allow for themselves to be to be limited by by government regulation. Uh, Google, are, I think, are actually a really good example of a company that does a similar thing because they have been donating to think tanks in the US that deny climate change, but that also protect uh, the regulation environment in the US for Google. Of course, they have ideologies like we're standing up for free speech, we're libertarians, we don't think the government should intervene in private corporations, which is very much in favour of what Google wants. So Google positions themselves as acting very strongly on climate change, but they donate very heavily to uh, opponents of climate action. Almost everyone we spoke to agreed that the internet and social media are exacerbating the spread of misinformation and conspiracy. And that the big tech giants have no interest in seriously addressing the issue. It's well known that falsehoods travel much faster than facts, and nowhere is this made more plain than on social media. This is the heart of the problem. The kind of sensational, emotive content that conspiracy theorists thrive on works well for the business interests of social media platforms like Facebook. Experts believe that pandemics will become more common in the coming decades. This is from the BBC in November. Scientists believe more pandemics are very likely in the foreseeable future. Global outbreaks of infectious diseases are becoming more common. Outbreaks of SARS, swine flu, MERS, Ebola and COVID-19 have all appeared since the start of the century. Population growth and wildlife encroachment have made it easier for diseases to pass to us from animals. People often have little or no immunity to these diseases. 
In the future, the warming climate and increased likelihood of pandemics will only mean more upheaval and more uncertainty. Situations like this are fertile ground for conspiracy theories to fill the void. The antidote to misinformation and conspiracy theory is fact and good information. But once someone's been seduced, how do you bring them back? This is Harvard professor Naomi Oreskes. If I were a real novelist, I'd be, I wouldn't write any more nonfiction. I would just write fiction because I think we, we know pretty well that the way to really reach people is through the heart, right? And through emotional connections and the reason people read novels. I mean, why does anybody read a novel? People love books and people read novels and they go to films, they go to cinema, they watch television. And why? Because it's fun, it's enjoyable. And because we, we really enjoy that feeling of human connection that we get from being involved in a fictional story. And we know that well-written fiction can move people to action, but it's really hard for scientists to do that. It's not what they're trained to do. It's not what they're emotionally suited to do. And think about it, science is all about facts, right? When you're trained as a scientist, you are trained to be, let's just say, almost obsessive about facts and factual information and quantification, all good things, all things for which there is a very good purpose and justification in science. But when it comes time to communicate to people, I could give you all the facts in the world about climate change. I've talked about sea level rise and parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, and you would just glaze over. But if I could explain to you why this matters to your life, why it matters to the future of your daughter, that's a whole different thing. And so that's why, you know, we know that making it real for people on an emotional level is the absolute best thing we can do. Well, there you go. A couple of uh, conspiracy theories over these two podcasts. But the thing that strikes me so much, Anthony and Olivia, is that the proliferation of conspiracy theories is so astonishingly broad. We could be doing these podcasts pretty much every week for, for a year and barely scratch the surface. You know, QAnon, God knows how many others. What other uh, you know, conspiracy theories have you seen that, that you think deserve particular attention? Well, I think a big one that uh, we've seen a lot of this year and we didn't get a chance to go into it, but being related to COVID as well is 5G and, um, you know, all the, all the things that 5G is causing from the pandemic to other, a variety of other ailments to it being, you know, a system of government control. So that's, that's definitely a big one. Um, and we've seen real life, I guess, impact of that. We saw people knocking down towers, 5G towers, so that's definitely something that, that's on the, on the rise. Anthony? I'd say one of the issues that's really concerned me for years is the war in Syria, which might feel very far away from here, but I'd say in the last decade, it's one of the most destructive wars of the world this century. And the reason I say in terms of propaganda and conspiracy theory is that although we often like to think that pro-Russian, pro-Iranian, pro-Syrian forces online have been pushing out their propaganda, which they have, no doubt, but one thing that's less discussed is large evidence now of both US and UK governments pushing out their own propaganda through social media accounts and other set of ways to try to push their agenda, to try to support the so-called rebels against the Assad regime. Now, this might feel far away in Australia, but actually it's quite relevant because what we increasingly, I think, see with conspiracy theories, which, as we say in the podcast, they've always been around. On one level, conspiracy theories are not new. 
What is new, though, is the weaponization of it and the ability for them to reach so far and wide. And I think also the inability, I would argue, for many people to actually know what's real and what's not. So I think there's been a lack of actual you know, real education online. Like I think there should be at schools education about how to deal with this stuff, literally from kindergarten. That's what I would argue. Absolutely. I think Syria is, an, is a really interesting example because arguably that is a war that he has been documented from woe to go on social media. You said, Anthony, I think that you think it's, it's been the most propagandised war in, in history. Um, you know, social media is not a, not a great medium, it turns out, for conveying good factual information and it's an excellent medium for the transmission and spread of misinformation, conspiracy. There is great potential in social media for people to manipulate it and exploit it and governments are increasingly aware of this and and have some of the greatest skills and resources to their avail to exercise it. Including our own. I mean, can I just say one of the things that I think that's really often misunderstood about so much of the media coverage is that we often talk about Russian, Iranian, Chinese disinformation campaigns, not denying any of that. It's real, it's happening, it's worsening, to be sure. But we also often ignore the fact that you don't think Australia and the US and the UK and our Western allies are doing it as well? Of course they are. It's less reported. The Syrian war actually has been some reporting in the UK of UK social media accounts pushed out by the Home Office and others pushing out a certain agenda. It's not my opinion. It's been reported in reputable outlets in the UK. So I think that's often less thought about, about what our own side is doing in terms of pushing our conspiracy theories too. But have we yet got to the stage where governments in the West are producing conspiracy theories and projecting them out across social media globally or targeted at particular countries with the sole purpose of creating falsehoods and weaponizing them to damage uh, other countries? I would say yes. I mean, in the Afghan and Iraq wars, which mostly happened, yes, before social media, there's vast evidence that the Bush administration in the US was pumping out propaganda about those wars, both to American audiences and also to Afghan and Iraqi audiences. That was before we even got to social media, Facebook, etc. So I would say, yes, it's different and less reported, but I would say yes. And I think... What, you know, one of the key takeaways from our reporting on these two episodes was that the politicians, people with a big public platform, play a very big role in the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories. That is of crucial importance. And without that amplification, a lot of these things would go nowhere. So, you know, whether they start conspiracy theories or whether they see them out there and um, latch onto them and, and realise that that might help their agenda. I mean, you know, arguably we saw that with, with the bushfires and, and coalition politicians retweeting this arson emergency hashtag that was completely had no basis in fact. Fascinating. I mean, one of the things about, you know, you talk about governments manipulating things. I'm thinking about the United States. You've got tens of millions of Americans who are, I would say, fairly soundly convinced that uh, Donald Trump had an election stolen from him, uh, who no longer trust mainstream media and for years ahead will now generate and sustain conspiracy theories about how this election was stolen to such an end that you seeing signs that the most exalted democracy on the planet is essentially tearing itself apart. It is saying the very thing that has made America exceptional uh, over more than 200 years was its steadfast belief in the powers of democracy. And the people who are part of that democracy, at least a substantial minority of them, 
don't believe it's worth a hill of beans because they, their guy lost. And the guy who lost is saying that he only lost because he had it stolen from him. So what the long-term consequences of that are, I've got no idea. Well, I think the whole situation then gets even more ridiculous when you think, so the guy who lost saying he hasn't lost, and then you've got his biggest platform um, for getting his message out, which is, is Twitter, and he's tweeting these things, and then Twitter is slapping, you know, warnings on his tweets saying that the claims in, this, in these tweets are contested. So you can understand why people don't want to trust mainstream media and the information that they see anymore because you've got the president saying one thing and then a huge Silicon Valley tech company saying you can't trust this, pointing to a, a range of media sources. I mean, it's, it's just a complete mind meltdown that's happening over there. And we should also say on that front that, as Olivia said before through our reporting, that on the issue of, say, Trump and a so-called stolen election, a lot of the platforms that are amplifying that message and not just fringe social media accounts, they are large people with mainstream followers, not just talking about Fox News. Fox News is the most prominent, of course, but there are others. And I might add, there was a New York Times had a piece recently asking all key Republicans who would openly say that Biden had won the election, a tiny minority we're obviously recording this in December 2020. That number may well change. But the truth is now, it's not, this is talking about the you know, major politicians in the US who will not accept the fact that their guy lost. So forget about even media. I mean, what do you think they're tweeting out? So they're tens of millions of followers. And that's why I often think that the, in Twitter, attaching a kind of this um, claim is contested, it almost seems a bit futile to me. I mean, I know why they say they're doing it, but I don't really, I'm not convinced it actually does very much. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not convinced it does. Mind you, they're copying an enormous amount of flack. I mean, the heads of, uh, of Twitter and Facebook were dragged up before, I think, twice the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, in recent weeks in the United States because of, uh, the, to, uh, to get them to answer claims that they had become themselves players in information by attaching those um, warnings to tweets that were coming even from the President of the United States because they were factually untrue. And yet for putting a, a red flagging those, they're essentially being hit by uh, all the power of Congress and the president's own office saying that big tech is against me. These guys are out of control. They've got to be brought back into control. So if the social media outlets as fundamentally the publishing and amplifying agents of these conspiracy theories and falsehoods, if they can't call it, who gets to call it? You're saying politicians are generating their own conspiracy theories and, and non-truths. So, so where does fact, what future, what hope is there for agreed facts in the world? That's quite a question. I'll answer that personally in a roundabout way. What I feel uncomfortable about is growing pressure, both from politicians and the general public, to pressure Facebook, Twitter and others to censor, to say, you guys should be the arbiter of facts. So person X makes a statement, there's some uh, video released, it's not true. You should be either retracting it, censoring it, cutting it, whatever it may be. That to me is a very dangerous, slippery slope. Who the hell said that a Silicon Valley company, unelected, usually done in secret. I mean, even now when things are censored on Facebook, there's no transparency about it. It's done by random people behind the scenes, not Mark Zuckerberg personally, maybe, but 
we don't know how that's done. And to me, it's a really dangerous development that we are increasingly, when I say we, the general public and often politicians are almost begging social media companies to be taking the role of censor. I don't have an answer to you here, but I don't feel comfortable with that potential outcome either. Well, I think that there's potentially a, a more sort of subtle, less heavy-handed solution because there's the right to free speech, but then there's also the right to free distribution. And I think what these social media platforms do very well is spread information very far and very quickly. And the reality is that the business models of these platforms, you know, Facebook especially, is that that kind of content that spreads far quickly, that goes viral, that people get excited about, that makes people outraged, is good for their business model because it increases engagement with the platform. So I think that you can say, no, we don't, I mean, I agree, Anthony, I don't want these social media platforms to be the censors of public discourse and, and so much of public discourse is happening on social media now. But I do think that they should be forced to be a bit more careful about the way that their algorithms and their AI um, accelerates these kinds of messages um, and, and spreads them around the world because I think they could have better control of that. The reality is they don't want to because they know it keeps people on. Which means regulation and breaking them up. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the bottom line. And the question is, will, would an incoming Biden administration want to do that when so many of the people they're likely to have in the cabinet are Silicon Valley people? So I don't know, I'm not that optimistic on that, but let's see. Well, thousands of years ago, Virgil warned of the speed with which uh, rumours travel. So it's not a new problem, but unquestionably being weaponised in the social media age. Fantastic uh, uh, conversations, great bit of investigation, and hopefully we'll get a chance to unpick a few more of these uh, conspiracy theories in future. Anthony Lowenstein and Olivia Rosenman, thank you for all your work and thank you for listening. The Conspiracy Virus is written, produced, and narrated by Anthony Lowenstein and Olivia Rosenman. The host is Hugh Rimmington. Post-production is by Stuart Buckland. This podcast is supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.